Let me invite you now, if you uh, brought a Bible with you or have access to one, please open it now to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and today we'll be reading verses 8 through 10. We finally got out of the first seven verses of Hebrews, and it took a long time. And we probably could have spent many more times in the first seven verses, but now we're going to talk about Abraham. And I think Abraham is probably one of the most significant people in all of the Bible and a significant religious figure. He is revered by three religions, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And all claims uh, uh, Abraham as a father of sorts, and that he is the father of the faithful. But there's a unique sense that uh, we in Christianity see Abra Abraham as the father of the faith. And with that said, let's begin to read from chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, will enable uh, me to preach the Word in a clear and powerful fashion. And we pray that those who are hearing the Word today would be ready to receive it, that their hearts would be tender and responsive and receptive, and that they would be open to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. And we pray that because we spent this time in your word, you may receive glory as fruit from us abounds to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Abraham, as I said earlier, is one of the most revered figures in all of the Bible. And I want you to think about, in the book of Hebrews, we've talked about a number of times the original hearers of the book of Hebrews, the ones who first heard it read or preached, because it's very much like a sermon. And uh, the original hearers were predominantly, almost exclusively, from a Judaistic background. They had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had embraced it with joy, and they had become a church. But after doing so, the whole world fell apart around they went through incredible persecution, incredible hardship, incredible suffering. They did not have their best life now. Not at all. I wish I could say we could all have our best life at all, uh, uh, best life now. But if you look at the life of Abraham, Abraham's life, though he lived under the old covenant, Abraham's life is a paradigm or a model for the life we live. Because we live already in God's kingdom, but not yet in the fullness of God's kingdom. 
Therefore, our lives are going to parallel Abraham's life in many ways. And we're going to talk about that as we go along. And so Abraham is a, a, an amazing character. Let me give you a little bit of background on him. Uh, ironically, when you look at Abraham, every time God showed up and spoke to him, Abraham had a crisis. The first time, God comes to him and he says, I'm going to ask you to leave your land where you live now. And where did he live? Well, according to Stephen and according to, uh, in Acts chapter 7 and according to uh, the book of Joshua chapter 24 and 2, Abraham lived in the land of Ur in the Chaldees, which is in the Fertile Crescent, and it was a sophisticated city. Uh, and he came from a very wealthy family. And the most remarkable thing about his father, Terah, was that Terah served other gods. He was an idol worshiper. You see, Abraham is not at all like Enoch, who we looked at last week, who walked with God. Abraham is a pagan idol worshiper living outside the land and doing quite well and living the good life and probably had everything he needed or ever could need. And so he was very happy there, and his family had been there for years. And they were a prominent family. And he was quite comfortable in life, living in a culture that was quite comfortable to him. And God called him to leave, and he says, I'll take you to another land. And he didn't even tell him where that land was at first. Not at first. So it was just leave, get up and go. And the Bible says that God appeared to Abraham, and in the old King James it says, God appeared to Abraham and said, get out. Get out. What? Get out of the land and go to the land I'm going to show you. That was what God said. His great introduction to Abraham was, hi, I'm the Lord God, get out. Okay? The second great crisis that happens to Abraham, we'll talk about this more in detail, in Genesis 15 where God appears to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you the land I've called you to. Yet, throughout Abraham's entire life, and it's mentioned here, there was never a place where he ever had an opportunity to settle down. There was never an opportunity in his whole life to even own one square foot of land. He was continually living in tents on other people's land, even though God had says, I'm going to give you a place to settle down. I'm going to give you a land. And then the third great crisis came when God appeared to him and said to him, I'm going to give you a son out of your loins and out of your wife's body. At that time, Abraham and his wife Sarah were in their 90s. And God says, I'm going to do it. You just wait. It went years and years and years before it happened. Finally, when they did have a son, God shows up one day and says in Genesis 22, I'd like you to slay your son. Now think about this for a minute. Take him up to the mountain, cut his throat, slay him. In other words, the story of Abraham's life, God said, get out. And Abram, that's who he was before he became Abraham, said where and God said I'll tell you later just go then the Lord says I will give you this land and Abraham said when and God said I'll tell you later just wander around in tents 
And the Lord says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham said, how? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wait around. So the Lord said, slay your son. And Abraham said, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just walk up the hill with him. Take the knife, and I'll tell you in time. And that is exactly how our lives are lived. Exactly how our lives are lived. Exactly. And you'll see that more and more as we go. Every time Abraham, though, to his credit, meets one of these crises, he seems to come out on top of the situation. If you read the whole narrative, you'll you'll find that Abraham did fall down a number of times. He did fail. But the point was, you might say, God doesn't appear to me like that. But you look at your life and you see that God calls us. Again and again, inexplicable calls, difficult circumstances, unbelievably confusing, incomprehensible tragedies, one after another. And if you hadn't had them yet, you haven't lived very long. That's all. Abraham, however, lived a big life. He lived large. In fact, he mastered these circumstances. Circumstances didn't master him. He governed life. Life didn't govern him. And how did he do it? Well, there are three principles that emerge from these two verses that we want to look at today. I must have read 15 sermons on this text, as well as other writers and scholars, and they all broke it down this way. And so he talks about faith as it first obeys God's call, second, as it believes God's promise, and third, as it sees God's city. So God comes to him and says, get out. Let me suggest to you for a moment that you will never lead this big, masterful life unless you hear the call. In fact, I'll go a little further. Those of you who say, well, I was raised in the church. I must be a Christian. Here's a way for you to know. Here's a way for you to tell. Here's a way for you to think about it. You're not even a Christian unless you hear this call. And what is the call? The call of God is something that comes in and first disturbs you and makes you think about your whole life. It makes you think about your whole life. And so the story of Abraham is is amazing in that regard. And the most amazing thing about him is that Abraham was not called out and was not saved because there was something about him. But he was saved by virtue of God's sovereign grace, his sovereign choice. Abraham was not singled out because of his faith, but because of God's grace. We might think God picked him because he was a pretty good man, but the Bible argues otherwise. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look at your Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. Isaiah's point is that there was nothing in their ancestry that commended either one of them to God. Either one. And Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Abraham was not seeking Yahweh. 
He was a pagan idol worshiper, and God intervened and came into his life and called him to himself. What Paul wrote in Romans 3, verses 11 through 12, was true of Abraham as well. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Abraham was saved then because God sought him out. His faith was preceded by God's call, and he responded to God's call, a call that came by grace alone through God's sovereign choice. And that is exactly how we are called. The life of faith begins when God chooses to reveal himself to us, and he reveals himself to us. And in Abraham's life, it was apparently a divine visitation. For us, it may be hearing God's Word preached, or it may be uh, listening to a Sunday school lesson, or it may be opening and reading a Bible, or it may be seeing someone who you know is a real Christian. But in every case, faith always begins with God revealing himself to somebody lost in sin, ignorant of, and unconcerned about him. And that is precisely who Abraham was. And that's how his story begins. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. And what is obedience to the gospel? What is obedience to the good news? New covenant obedience is nothing more or less than repentance and faith. Repentance is turning away from where he was, turning away from who he was, turning away from his sin, and turning to the Lord and God's pronouncement of the forgiveness of sins and he entered into a relationship and that's what faith requires he had to leave his home he had to leave his family he had to leave his prospects for life he had to go where God called him so it is for everyone who would be saved God's call is not to merely believe some abstract teaching or doctrine but to obey his call and to follow him But it begins when God begins to disturb us. Someone once said good preaching, really good preaching, is comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And one of the things that God does when he calls us out to himself is we begin to experience discomfort. And we begin to feel this sense of uh, things not being what they ought to be. What is the call and what does it mean that Abraham looked to the city with foundation? Which means the call of God is something that comes in and it shows you, first of all, that nothing in this world has foundations. Let's talk about that for a moment. What gives you the greatness? What gives you the ability to be courageous? What gives you the ability to risk? What gives you the ability to be free in this life, to first come Uh, to a radical and profound understanding that nothing in this world has any foundations. Nothing. Nothing here is secure. Nothing lasts. So what's the call? Let me give you some examples. Let's start at the bottom. Number one, the world we live in has no physical foundations. A hundred years ago, after Western intelligentsia 
got rid of the idea of God and decided as a result that matter must have been eternally here, so they believed that matter was solid a hundred years ago. Now we know nothing is solid. Nothing is solid. Everything is energy in motion. Everything. The world doesn't have physical foundations. Everything is energy in motion. What is an atom? Well, it's not solid either. You know, I, 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 uh, one time when I heard a lecture on this in one of my particular classes in college, I remember looking at the seat in front of me and they would say, that seat is not solid, it's energy in motion. I said, no it isn't, it's right there, I can see it, it's solid. But it is energy in motion. It is not solid. And so, the Big Bang Theory, not the television show, but the theory, which is the reigning theory of how the world started, is that there was an explosion. And the reason we have matter is because the universe was expanding. And as it cooled, we got matter. But the universe is unraveling. It's winding down. Eventually, it will come apart. When Peter said in 2 Peter, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, he was just anticipating 20th century science, 2,000 years ahead. How can you be sure of anything if the very universe underneath you is unraveling as we speak? So eventually everything is coming apart. The center will not hold. It's all falling apart. It's falling apart. There's no security here. Anything you do or accomplish will be completely forgotten because there won't even be anybody around to remember it. Let's go a little further. The world has no intellectual foundations. And here's what I mean by that. No intellectual foundations. Nothing here has foundations. Look at the ways in which Christianity, for example, has been attacked. A hundred years ago or more, it was attacked terribly on the basis of a philosophy that we call the philosophy of the Enlightenment, which gave us modernity or modernism. The Enlightenment believed that human nature was basically good, that reason and science and empirical investigation is going to solve all our problems. Technology will be our savior. We already have the technology. Inevitably, human beings and civilizations are going to continue to progress to higher and higher realms. That was the Enlightenment. Trust in the infallibility of reason and science and in the inevitability of human progress. On the basis of that philosophy, Christianity was attacked as utterly pessimistic, anti-human, and so forth. Today, Christianity is every bit as attacked as it was a hundred years ago, but the same people who attack it now utterly repudiate and ridicule the Enlightenment. We have gone from modernism as a philosophy and we're now in what most philosophers would say that which comes after modernism which is postmodernism and postmodernism is laughing at and ridiculing modernism which attacked Christianity a hundred years ago what I'm trying to tell you tell you is something else will come along after postmodernism what whether we call it post postmodernism which will go back to pre-modernism at the time of Aquinas and others. And so it's just, there's no foundation, there's no stability. In other words, the Christians 
the critics of Christianity today utterly ridicule the Christi critics of Christianity 100 years ago. And the critics 100 years ago ridicule the critics 100 years before that. And if you're hostile to Christianity today, if today you have lots of doubts about the whole idea that there could be a God or that the Bible could be true or that Jesus could be the Son of God, you have to keep in mind that in 100 years people are going to laugh at you. Why? Because the center doesn't hold. There are no foundations. No foundations at all. In other words, you see, Christianity doesn't crumble, get this, because it's not from this world. Christianity doesn't crumble because it's not from this world. It's not changing. The intellectual foundation, you know, you have to rewrite a science book every five years. Get a clue. Get a clue. And then historical uh, what is that where you rewrite history? What is, what is that called? Thank you. Revisionism. The, not only do, do they write history, but now they go back and revise history so it'll fit the current meta-narrative that everybody is drinking the Kool-Aid for. But anyway, the intellectual foundations of the world are constantly crumbling, constantly changing. Why? Because they don't work. There's nothing in the center. The center will not hold. Ten years ago, well, let's go a little further. Let's think about ourselves. Instead of thinking corporately, let's look at the things you, ten years ago, thought were cool and smart. Now you look back and you say, boy, I really made some stupid mistakes. Why? Because your perception is in flux all the time. Your wisdom is in flux. The intellectual structures of the world are in flux. This world has no foundations. You can't just say, now that I'm 45, I know what's true. Now I know. When you're 55, you'll think when you were 45, you were just really, in many ways, a very mature, silly man. Or immature, silly man. And you can't just say, well, now we know Christianity isn't true. That's what they said in 1890. And they're laughing at you now. We're laughing at things people said in 1890. The world has no foundations. There are no physical foundations. There are no intellectual foundations. You can't just settle down and say, I found security. This is my place. No. It's unraveling. It's coming apart. It's crumbling no matter what it is. This world doesn't have psychological foundations. What does it mean when they say you can't go home? You can't keep your friends together, especially in Las Vegas. They move. You know, when you get in a good group of people, then they're gone. You can't keep your family together, even if you have a good family. Things change. Things are in flux. The other day I read an interview with a supermodel. I don't know why, but I did. And I forgot which one it was, but she was saying, you can't keep your waistline together. <laughs> she said, I'm 26 and I'm a size 6, and I know the way things are. When I'm 36, I'll be a size 10, and I'll just have to get ready for that. I've seen women who get absolutely devastated when that happens to them, and I'm not going to be devastated. And there are a bunch of guys in here laughing at that, right? You see, because that's not our foundation, don't you see? The reason people get devastated, the reason intellectuals are devastated when they find the views they espouse when they got their Ph.D. in their 30s are laughing stock now. 
That's why I've never written a book. Pam asked me the other day, when are you ever going to write that book you've been saying you're going to write? I said, I don't want to write it and then 10 years later laugh at it. She said, well, then you will never write one. I said, well, I don't know. Just not today. Not today. Well, what am I saying? I'm saying that people get devastated because nothing holds together here. The reason the model is devastated is now they're 44. What are they when they're 46? I guess a size 12. Horrors. In other words, your perceptions, your choices you made in your 30s look like idiocy when you're in your 50s. The reason people are being devastated again and again and again is they haven't gotten a hold of this fundamental fact they haven't heard the call of God. Everything they have is rooted in this world, but Christianity is not from this world. It is not from this world. It is outside of this world. There's just no foundation, no foundation. They haven't come to see everything, culture, acclaim, money, relationships, status, jobs, achievement, have no foundation. They are unraveling. They are not secure. They are not really there. They are no foundation. They are no security. So when God called Abraham, what happened? What shook him? It was the call of God. I'm not talking about the call of God to the ministry. I'm not talking about the call of God to another culture, which is sort of like mission work. I'm not saying that I'm saying the call comes to everybody if you listen. The call of God is, if there is a God, he is the only important thing. If there is God, no God, nothing has foundations. If there is a God, then my relationship to him is ultimate, and it is the only important thing. The only important thing. The first point is you have to hear the call of God. You have to hear the call of God, and you have to see that there are no foundations here. But the second thing is he didn't just hear the call. Abraham obeyed the call. What stands remarkable to me is not that God would ask Abraham to do this stuff. It was that Abraham did it. It was that Abraham did it. Now, I want to give you a paradigm for understanding Abraham. Here's Abraham over here. And God promises Abraham amazing things. He promises him a seed. He promises him a land. He promises him uh, incredible blessing upon blessing upon blessing. He promises him, promises him his presence. And so God gives Abraham many promises. And over here we have the fulfillment of the promises, which Abraham never got in his lifetime. Did you hear that? He never got one of them in his lifetime. And so Abraham is living in the gap between the promises God has made him on the one hand and the promises God has fulfilled in the other. And so his whole life is li living in the gap of reality between promises made and promises fulfilled. And that is right where you and I live. Right where we live. Right where we live. 
Now, what does it mean to obey the call? It means you start to act as if. See, it's one thing to see that the world has no foundations. It's another thing to act as if the world has no foundations. And how does it work? It's pretty simple. That is why you master life if you understand it. But it happens as you begin to go out upon trusting God and what he's promising you will ultimately be fulfilled. Ultimately be fulfilled. Abraham heard the call. Abraham obeyed the call. But let's admit that this development into the great heart that Abraham had was a process. And if you go back to Genesis 12 and you look all the way at the end of the life, in Genesis 26, I think when he dies, you will see definitely he fell down a number of times. He often got the call, and he was often shown that the world has no foundations. He was called by God to live as if God alone was his security and nothing else was. But there were times in which Abraham fell down. And the reason for that is our hearts cling to these old false securities. I mean, you think of the American dream. The American dream is of this world. It's not of that world. And the American dream is I work, have a family, provide for my family, and I continue to work and develop a career, and I save up for retirement, and I retire, and I end my life in the golden years in utter bliss. I have never met a retiree yet who ever said to me, I'm living in utter bliss. Not one. Not one. But the temptation for every one of us is always to look back upon those false securities and believe the lie that they will give us foundations. They will give us security. If I just had that, if I just got that, if I just knew that, then I would feel secure. Then I would have peace. Then I would know I'm on my way. But there's something else I want to tell you about Abraham. Every time God calls Abraham, the problems get harder, not easier. I hate to tell you that. I hate to tell you that. Because I'm, I'm over here. I'm not brand new. I'm over here. I just had my 65th birthday. And I can remember my mother says, well, if it's not one thing, it's going to be something else. And it's going to be something that's going to be harder. And I'm thinking, are you so negative? I don't want to hear all that negative stuff. Turn on Joel Osteen. <laughs> but then she says, or I said, and I began to understand, that the tests get harder, not easier. It becomes more difficult to trust God, not easier. And if you look at Abraham's life, it's a testament of that. What's the last thing he did? He took his son who represented to him everything God had ever promised him to slay him as a sacrifice. Tell me that wasn't hard. So God continually sent crises into Abraham's life and he progressively weaned him away so eventually he became a great heart. And you think, well, how cruel of God. You don't say it out loud, but you think it. Because you're afraid a lightning bolt will hit you, but you're thinking, that's cruel. 
Is it possible that what's going on in your life right now, any of you, you know, you see, it is just being kind of a cruelty. Why is God letting this happen to me right now? Instead of seeing it as a call to get out, as a call by God to say, why don't you see the reasons you're so devastated is you put all your eggs in your, uh, of your heart in this particular basket and every basket here on earth has no foundations. Read a story about a lumberjack. Lumberjack comes into a forest area and he knows that over the next several weeks he's going to cut down every single tree in this forest, every single tree in this area. And he sees a mother bird up in a tall tree starting to make her nest. And so what does he do? Well, he's a compassionate man. He goes over, and with the flat side of his axe, he begins to hit the tree, and to hit that tree so hard that it rattles that poor mother bird around and gives her a concussion almost. She looks down and says, why is this person doing this terrible thing to me? Finally, she gets up and goes to another tree. And what does the compassionate lumberjack do? He goes to the next tree and he starts hitting that tree, whacking, whacking, whacking. And she starts to have another concussion. And she looks down and what is this person doing? What is this? Who does this person think he is? And she goes from tree to tree and he follows her through the whole forest. And he won't let her go until finally he sees her fly away from the trees and start to build her nest in the rock build her nest on the side of the mountain, then he leaves her alone. Why? Every tree is coming down. It's not merciful to let people build their nest in trees, and that is exactly how God is. Was it merciful? Is it cruel of God, for example, to continually go to Abraham and keep rocking the tree he was in all the time? And that's what God, that's what God is doing to us. He's rocking the tree. I'd rather just stay in the tree and leave me alone. But he's rocking the tree. He's rocking the tree. Seminary professor I had years ago, and he was dying of cancer, and he said, all of us are on this little ball of rock called Earth, and we're spinning through space at a zillion miles of an hour, and if we don't run into anything, which I guess we always might, it doesn't matter because someday, underneath every single one of us, a trap door will open and we will fall off, and underneath will be the everlasting arms of God, or millions of miles of nothing and nothing and nothing. Which means, don't you see, if God is your security, you are truly secure no matter what's going on in this world. That is so hard to practice and to lay hold of. But if God is not your security, you have none. You have no security, no matter how good things seem to be going in this world. It's not cruel of God to show us that. That is not cruelty. It is mercy. If he does show us, and you're willing to hear that call, and you're willing to obey that call, instead of just getting bitter, you'll become a great heart like Abraham. i got one more thing to say before we're done. But I'll, I'll give you the impression that hearing and obeying God is a matter of stoicism. It's not. It would be very easy to say, okay, I can follow him, I can follow him, I can put all my heart into money or achievement or culture, or even my family and my children. I realize nothing here has foundations. I realize I have to figure out what God wants me to do and follow my principles. That's the most important thing. 
In other words, you can sort out and reason it rationally, and it will never be enough. It's too cold. It's too calculating. It's pure ethics. There's no way it will really help you in the crucible. It will never help you in the furnace. You see, Abraham did what Abraham did was he didn't just look at life, he looked ahead of life. What does it say? He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now Abraham didn't know too much about what was up there. He knew, he was told by God, one of his descendants was going to come and he was going to make the world a great place. So he knew about the Messiah in a very general way and Jesus Christ in John chapter 8 said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So Abraham had a general knowledge. He looked forward. He knew something was coming. He had hope on the basis of it. But we know a lot more than Abraham and here's why. When God calls you to get out, we also know of someone who got out in a much more profound way. The Bible tells us Jesus Christ left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's hopeless race, Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. That's one of the hymns we sing, you see. And when we are called to get out, meaning if I tell the truth, if I'm loving, if I obey God, I'm going to lose some security here, I'm going to lose some money here, I'm going to lose some friends here, but nothing is compared to how Jesus got out for you. The Bible tells us Jesus got out. He left the safety, safety and security of his father's home. Eventually on the cross, he left his father's heart. God turned on him as part of the payment for our sin on the cross. He was absolutely stripped of everything, which means Christian, a Christian has a situation that even Abraham didn't have. A Christian can think very concretely. A Christian thinks like this, if I'm being called away from my home, if I'm being called away from my money, if I'm being called away from my family, it's nothing, it's nothing like the homelessness or the penny, pennilessness or the fatherlessness Jesus Christ experienced for me. He experienced it for me so I could have a home. I could have riches one day. I could have a family that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. In other words, a Christian is somebody who says, wait a minute, since the great debt has been paid, all other debts are small things. Since the great disease has been healed, all other diseases are in reality small things. Since the great romance has been commenced, frankly, all other romances are small things. Since the great home has been paid for that I'm going to, all other homes are really less important things. If you hear the call of God and obey and go where he calls you to go, you become a person of unbelievable stability because you think of what he went through. When you're called to get out, if you're called right now to do something, that to do it right means it's going to cost you, you're hearing the call to get out, well, what do you do? You think about Jesus. You become enamored with Jesus. Jesus upon the cross left everything. He got out. 
Nothing we will ever be called to do will have the same degree of what he was called to do. He did it so that when you do and make your sacrifices, you know you have been given and guaranteed a home, a father, a wealth with foundations. If you know that, you can face anything. And so though Abraham received from God amazing promises, and though Abraham didn't see those promises fulfilled in his lifetime, in the meantime, in between promise and fulfillment, God whacked the trees and knocked him out of the nest. And if you're going to live with him, he's going to do that to you. And he's going to do that to me. Some of you are in it right now. And don't entertain hard thoughts towards your Father in heaven. He's merciful. He's doing it. Because he's called you out to be his and he loves you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us a person like Abraham who heard your call and obeyed your call, though he struggled over the years because he looked forward and rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. We see he became a person who overcame in life, and we pray that we may overcome in the same way he did. We ask you to help us hear the call and not be bitter. Help us to obey the call and not shrink back. Help us to look forward and think about what you've done until we weep with joy and find the small things we have to do really begin to look small in the comparison with the great things Jesus has done on our behalf. As we continue to worship you, Lord, may we give back part of the resources you've entrusted us with to express to you our trust and our love for you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.